Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Dark Matters. This episode will contain topics of abuse and the murder of a young child. We would like to give you an early trigger warning, in case you are unaware of any details of today's case. By the title of this episode, you know that I will be covering the case of the boy in the box, who has recently been identified by DNA. For this episode, I will be telling the story chronologically, so I will intentionally not be using the boy's name until the end. This is not to cause disrespect to him or his family. We hope you stick around and decide to dive into this case with us. Here I will once I officially look back. I know, right? Yeah. Remember, you can't look at my notes. I'm not looking at your notes. Okay, good. Okay, Samantha. Hi, Fran. Hi, Fran. Hi, Fran. Hi, Fran. We're in the same location today. Very weird. It's very weird. I'm trying not to look at you. <laughs> don't look at me. <laughs> don't look at me. And don't look at my notebook. <laughs> it's a secret. I'm not. Okay. I should have went over my notes. I know my notes. It's fine. I went from, and I have all my sources laid out and everything. And I was very impressed by myself. Okay. So let's get into it. So on February 23rd, 1957, it's a Sunday. And a junior at LaSalle College had been driving down Susquehanna Road that afternoon. And I can see you're you're already trying to figure it out. And I'm so (laughs) glad it's not obvious. And all of a sudden, a rabbit ran in front of his car. And he's like, oh, crap. Let me park my car and get out and chase this rabbit into the trees. What? Wouldn't you do the same? No. No, I would cry. One, because I'd be like, I was in a rabbit. Not to mention the one time I hit a raccoon with my mom's <laughs> minivan and it rolled up the side of my car. Oh my god! I was silent the whole ride home. <laughs> I had turned off the music. Fucking murderer. It's like you murderer. You could hear it tumbling. Ew, stop. <laughs> it wasn't there when I drove back, so I was like, it survived. Anyway, ran <sighs> a rabbit ran um ran out. He was like, okay, I'm gonna chase it into the woods, but he lost it. And then while he was there looking for this rabbit, he noticed several unset muskrat traps in the brush. So he decided to set them and then come back the next day to see if they were set. Okay. Next day he comes back. It's a Monday morning and they're not touched. So he's like, okay, well, wait another day and I'll come back and I'll see. Because right now I guess he's like, this is really what I want to do. He's very invested in these traps. But the next day, that Tuesday on February 25th, he saw a report about a missing girl from Belmar, New Jersey, and he decided to call the police. Because not only was he worried about the missing girl, he thought he found the missing girl. Because the whole story was made up to save his own skin. What had really happened that Sunday, on the 23rd, was that he was known as a peeping Tom, and this junior went over to park on the side of the road, on Susquehanna Road, and he was hoping to catch a glimpse of some of the females at the Good Shepherd home, which was a Catholic residence for wayward girls. When he was in the brush trying to catch a peek, he noticed a box. This box was open and tipped over on its side, and inside he thought it was a doll. It wasn't a doll. He realized it was a body. So he told the next day that Monday, he went to his priest and he said, I think I found a body. And his priest said, you need to tell the police so that third morning on Tuesday, when he called the police because he thought the missing girl was the body that he found, it wasn't. 
it was a missing boy. And this boy would become known as the boy in the box. Oh, my God. Do you know the story? I heard about it. I don't think I ever really got to like look into it. Okay. But wait, back up a second. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, yes. What is this kid's name? This kid's name, we will get into it, but his name is Frederick. Call him Fred the Peeping Tom. No. Because that was what really happened. And he concocted that story after talking to his priest the day after he found this dead body in his box. So his his excuse for being in the woods at the time is because he almost hit a rabbit and wanted to chase it into the woods. And then wanted to set traps and come back and look for them. A junior in college came up with the most ridiculous story because he thought, I can't say I was going to go stare at girls. Yeah, so that was a whole made-up story. And the crazy thing is, he wasn't the first one to find this box. He wasn't the first one to find this body, okay? So he, two days before Fred found the body, um, a high school student named John had made the same discovery, and he had never told police. He was too afraid. Later, police did find him. It was a while until this high schooler did come forward. But they said he was so startled and scared that he was afraid to even mention it to his parents. So not only was Fred a weird peeping Tom, but this poor high schooler who had originally found this body, they they wouldn't know that this would be the beginning of a 65-year-old case of who is this boy in the box. So... The crazy thing is, and the amazing thing is, DNA has actually come out. We do know the boy's identity. Oh. Which I will get into it. But this past December, if you guys are listening to it, December 2022, we actually did find out who, who the boy is. So it's still an unsolved murder, but we do know the boy's identity. And I'm not going to use his name throughout the story, not to insult him, but to... Get to that part because it's a big deal and I want to talk about it all at once. So let's talk about the crime scene because, of course, they showed up 10 o'clock in the morning right after they got this phone call from this boy. Luckily, he did come forward, but he did say that once he heard about the missing girl, he was like, this has to be the girl I found. I have to tell police. So good on him for that. The first officer that arrived on the scene was named Elmer Palmer. So a little bit about the actual location. It's in Philadelphia's Fox Chase section. And they arrived about 10, 10 a.m. on that Tuesday on some say the 25th and some say the 26th. And I believe it's the 26th. Whatever you say. I only have two pages of notes. And already Sunday 23rd, Monday 24th, Tuesday 25th. So when Elmer approached this crime scene, he found a large cardboard box laying on its side and was opened at one end. Inside lay the body of a deceased boy, age at the time estimated between four and six years old. And he was wrapped in a recently laundered blanket that uh, resembled a Navajo Indian design. And I said that, so I'm not laughing because it's funny. I'm laughing because my notes are... Oh. The more you do this and the more you do research, you realize everybody says something different. It's really annoying. Mm -hmm. But he had apparently blue eyes and blonde hair or light brown hair. And he was nude and he was covered in bruises. There were clumps of hair found on his body, possibly due to a recent haircut. And his hair was cut very short, buzzed close to the scalp in places. And it looked rushed and almost like it 
could have been, well, later detectives would, um, they were led to believe that the hair was cut by the killer who disguised the boy's identity. He had been placed in the box with his hands folded over his chest. His fingernails were freshly trimmed and neat. And at first it was uncertain how long he had been there because there was, the weather was freezing and it made it difficult to determine how long he had been there. It could have been between three days and two weeks. And his hands, interesting enough, kept on coming up. His hands and feet looked pruny, like he had been in the water and perhaps bathed either right before his death or right after his death, but long enough to make his fingers pruny, which was interesting. So they were still pruny when they found him? Yeah. So while searching the lot, they found only one piece of evidence, and it was a man's cap that was found only about 17 feet away from the box. And it was found... On So there was a beaten path through the brush that led directly from the box to this cap. And the cap was made from royal blue corduroy with a leather strap and a buckle on the back. This will be edited out. <laughs> so that's what they found. So that is what they originally found at the crime scene. So the autopsy was done by Philadelphia Chief Medical Examiner, Dr. Joseph Spellman. And he found that the boy weighed just over 30 pounds, so he was very malnourished. Um, He was slender and thin-faced. His legs, arms, and head had significant bruising. He had a full set of baby teeth and had his tonsils still. Further inspection showed he suffered from some sort of chronic eye disease and had recently been exposed to a diagnostic dye in his left eye, which I thought was interesting. So, like, under UV light, it showed up blue, and that apparently... um, meant that he had recently had that dye put in his eye for, like, chronic illness. Wow. I just – no, I just think it's interesting. I mean, I, so I have, I have thoughts. Okay. I have thoughts about, about how they found the body, the state of the body. So when you were first talking about how his fingernails were had been trimmed, he looked like he had been, like, kind of set in, the, in a position to be found. Typically, I thought when killers – take the time to do stuff like that, like pose them or trim their nails or make them like redress them or anything like that. I thought that indicated that they have some sort of remorse for what they've done and they're trying to do little, little moves like that. Like after death, they feel the guilt and they're like, so let, let me just trim their nails, make them look look presentable, place them in this box. Well, it's interesting that you say that because my notes originally, one of my, um, sources mm-hmm. said that it looked like he had been lovingly taken care of after death and placed in this box. So it's very yeah. interesting that you say that because one of the sources did mention it, mm-hmm. but then no other source mentioned it. But it was interesting that you said that because just very odd. It just is very odd. Well, what also is odd too is when you just said that he was malnourished though. Mm-hmm. Yes. So that is because that doesn't make sense too. He's going to be malnourished, but they're going to take him to an eye doctor to look at his eyes. Like that something is going yeah. up there too. Like you're neglecting him, but not neglecting him. Right. It doesn't make sense. Go further on into the autopsy. He had several old scars, and um, some of them indicated that he had surgery. So again, he's getting treated for things and again he's what four to six years old that they assume at this time so he had an l-shaped scar on his chin which wasn't surgical but he did have it a one inch surgical scar on his left side of his chest a round irregular scar on his left elbow a well-healed scar at his groin most likely from hernia surgery and a scar on his left ankle that resembled a cut down incision used to expose veins for possible blood transfusion. 
That's weird. That's very weird. And I'm sorry, for a small child to have surgical scars, someone has to be taking care of him and then also neglecting him? Very weird. Um, Still the autopsy. So he, it was shown that he had eaten only two to three hours before he died. And they found that it was possibly baked beans in his system. That sounds like shit. (laughs) (laughs) But they found a a brown residue, brown residue in his esophagus. And they think that's because he perhaps vomited. So this is also where it gets weird because everything we just said about the surgeries and everything. He had no vaccination marks. And that led police to suspect that the boy had never been enrolled in public school. I don't know about that, though, because for him to not have any vaccination marks, it's like a needle point. That's also true. And at this point, they don't know who it is. Like, that's really So this- they can't find a history of the boy. Yeah. I mean, I don't I don't find that credible as a as a point, because really, if you're going to be vaccinated, it's like any shot that you get. True. It's going to be on your arm for probably a couple of days and it goes away. That's true. There's also, no I don't way know they how can- they look. Yeah. But also, no 50s, like 1957, was it? Yeah, it was what their is- needles were bigger, but they they were. <laughs> the whole glass is a little long. What they might okay, have this but- is random, but have you ever seen Outlander? No. Well, they show, I guess their smallpox vaccine or something, and it was an actual like scar that they received because I guess it was so new. Maybe. And it actually left a mark. So I'm thinking Okay, maybe. I don't know how the fifty like in the fifties, maybe it did leave then. marks, you know? Maybe. So that's the only thing I thought. Okay. Fair. So they believed um, Joseph Spellman, Dr. Spellman, he believed that the cause of death was head trauma with a blunt instrument, but they didn't rule out damage by pressure and they couldn't rule that out because the investigators, it could have, it was suggested that damage could have been inflicted by someone who was squeezing the boy's head. What? And they said if that was the cause... It could have been when he was getting his last haircut. Maybe he received pressure from the head by someone holding him in place. That's so weird. he did believe a blunt instrument. They do they do follow with that pretty much throughout the whole thing, but they couldn't rule it out. Getting into the clues, there was a label found inside this cap, which is basically the only cl- one of the two clues that we have, the cap in the box. And this cap led to what was called Robin's Eagle Hat and Cap Company in Philadelphia. And the proprietor of that company was Hannah Robbins. And she said that it was one of 12 caps that had been made from corduroy remnants at some point prior prior to May 1956. She recalled that particular cap. Of course, it's always like, this is always what you want. You want someone to be like, oh, that's particular. And I remember that <laughs> specifically. <laughs> like, So she said it had been made without the strap, but had been added later. And the purchaser had returned later to have the strap sewn on. She recalled it being a blonde man in his late 20s who possibly resembled the murdered boy when she was shown a photograph. So I don't know if she is assuming this boy could have been a brother, a father, and like a relative, you know? But then, of course... She was like, I have no record of a name or an address. Everyone paid in cash. She didn't need any information. He came back, got it done, whatever. So that kind of ended there. 
the box that the boy was found in, they got a little bit more. It was from JC Penney's and original. <laughs> it's, so it's just not what like you expect. Like someone, it's that's the fucked up part because it's such a normal box, like from JC Penney's, and it was originally used for a baby bassinet. Um, it still had the manufacturer's number on it, as well as the address of which JC Penney's it was purchased at, which was 15 miles away in Upper Darby. Okay. Okay. They were able to find out which shipment it came from. And they found out that the bassinet was one of 12 sold at the store, but all were paid with cash. Of course. Everything's paid with cash. Um, no names could be found. After further investigation, eight of the 12 bassinets were accounted for. And those individuals ended up coming forward to say, hey, this is the bassinet. It's from this shipment, JCPenney's. I either have the box that I can show you because I'm using it for storage, or I threw it out once I bought the bassinet. And they didn't have a reason to not believe the people that said, hey, I bought it and I threw out the box, like I recycled it. But I think to this day, the remaining four were never claimed. So that quickly led to a dead end. And then the only thing that they had to go off was the blanket in which the boy was wrapped in. And they just knew that it was recently washed. It was mended and was cut into two unequal pieces um, but there was no usable fingerprints on the box or anything else. So it was basically just another dead end. So now they're trying to ID this boy and they're thinking, Hey, this is going to take us two days tops. We're going to figure out this boy. Someone's missing him. Someone knows something. Well, no, because the boy's fingerprints were taken and photos of the boy were circulated around the area. The fingerprints were run through hospital records and databases, but nothing was found. Hold on, I need to look up his picture again. Okay. So I can get a mental image. Because the one that they... This is the one I remember. Yep. Because it was a few. It was him beaten. Terrifying. And circulated. By the way, to see this picture. And then now if you go on images, you can see his his photo recreated less of a violent way, but it's it's actually him. Wow. Yeah, and I'll get to this photo because it does, uh, they do anything and everything they can think of to help this little boy. That's terrible. It's, and imagine walking up and finding that. Just to describe it briefly, Mm -hmm. you can kind of get the indication. It looks like he was kind of like thrown away. Yes. Like just thrown in this box, even though we know that based on, on what you had said before, he was posed a little bit. Mm -hmm. The the image of the of the box being found mm-hmm. and the way he's laying in it, it's just so in like, the brush. It's in the brush. Disturbing. It's disturbing because it looks just terrible. It's like he was mm-hmm. literally thrown away. Yeah, and, and forgotten about, and that is literally terrible. And people like and they th- like these kids are coming up and finding it. And they're like, oh, it's a doll. That's always how it is. It's a mannequin. It's a doll. It's no, always. it's always a dead body. Literally always. I'm I'm like again. I'm not not using his name out of disrespect. Because it is very exciting that we know that, like, what his identity is now. But I would like to just save it until the end to kind of have yeah, no, yeah. the full effect of yeah, this yeah. is where we come through this whole thing. Because right now, at this point, we have no idea who this boy is. Right. So Continue. Sorry. I had no, to that's okay. So, yeah. So, sure. no, nothing was found based on his fingerprints. Which I thought was weird. Interesting. As a kid, I remember just doing it for fun. And I'm pretty sure the police just... Well, then again, we were born in the 90s. So. That's true. So nothing was found. And no one reported a missing child or came forward. Suspicious. Suspicious. So that's automatically someone knows who is close. That is suspicious. That Very. is sad. 
Very. So they sent flyers and notices out nationwide to police and FBI bulletins. And they went to orphanages across the country, but nothing was found. The MAA, the American Medical Association, passed out details of the boys' scars, but received no information. Like people do about like teeth work, Mm -hmm. you know? So nothing. Authorities went as far as to dress him and photograph him in a sitting position to, quote, make him look more lifelike. So that's the picture. That was the picture. He is sitting up. Some photos, it does block his face because it is very unsettling to see because he is still bruised. But he is sitting up in that photo, dead, days after, to try to find if anyone recognizes this boy. So those photos were highly circulated, but no one came forward. And the anonymity of this boy and lack of records made it seem that he literally never existed at all. On February 27th, the Thursday after the boy was found, very soon after, detectives Joseph Carruthers and Sergeant Edward Reps took a photo with the blanket, hoping someone who recognized it would come forward. Good for them. And they did very quickly. Police did receive hundreds of tips from both out-of-towners as well as Philadelphians. By April of 1957, over 50 people from outside the city and 85 city dwellers attempted to ID the boy and all led nowhere. Police received over 500 letters in all in regards to the case. Circulars with photos of the boy and the blanket were sent out, as well as a detailed description of the boy's body and place where he was found. 4,000 circulars were sent out the first week after his discovery to city physicians. 10,000 circulars were sent to police stations throughout PA and eastern states. And another 25,000 circulars were prepared and sent out days later. I mean, they were really, they were really trying. This was really interesting. The Philadelphia Gas Works and Philadelphia Electric Company set out over, sent out over 300,000 circulars along with their clients' monthly bills to try to get more circulated, you, like try to get more people to see it and to be circulated. The Philadelphia Inquirer called it, quote, the, the greatest circulation in the history of the city, end quote, which I believe. Handbills appeared in the area's grocery stores, drug stores, as well as train stations, By that month in April, state liquor stores throughout PA displayed posters of the boy. And this was the first time in history that the Liquor Control Board permitted police to use their stores in that way. The Philadelphia Inquirer was actually the ones that printed the posters as, quote, as a public service, which I thought was very nice of them because everyone's working together. And these efforts led to hundreds of tips. But by the end of another week, the case came to a virtual standstill. Let's talk about the the boy's burial. Because by July, five months after the boy's discovery, he was still in the morgue because no one can claim him. The police took up a collection to raise money for the boy's funeral. And this included the Federal Directors Association of Philadelphia and the Man Funeral Home, who the Man Funeral Home actually covered the service. And hold on, I have an arrow in my notes. I don't know where I'm trying to put it. Oh, okay. Um, So Detective Samuel Powell, Robert Bilton, and Andrew Widger, who was on the case, alongside medical examiner office employee Alan Ressa, were his pallbearers. He was buried in a white casket in a potter's field in Holmesburg, PA. His gravestone read, quote, Heavenly Father, bless this unknown boy, end quote. And no grieving family or friends of the boy were reported to have shown up at the funeral. Terrible. Again, 
what the hell is going on? This is a little boy. Like, I'm sorry. Like, what the heck are we doing? So they ended up, the boy spent, so the boy spent 41 years in his initial grave before being exhumed in November of 1998. DNA was extracted, but not enough was taken to be successful. He was reburied in November 11th, 1998 at Ivy Hill Cemetery this time in Philadelphia. Ivy Hill donated the gravesite and Craig Mann of the Mann Funeral Home, whose son, whose father was originally the one that covered the funeral cost, he now stepped in and covered it at the cemetery. DNA was collected again when he was exhumed in 2000, but again, it was unsuccessful. I did hear it was from a tooth, um, but they just didn't get enough. And at the time with DNA testing, if you don't get abundance of DNA, you can't, you can't test it. Not like today. And then there's the Vidoc, if I'm saying that correctly, society who covered the cost of the boy's second burial. And they are an association of sleuths that work on unsolved cases. We need to call them up. And about 100 people attended the boys' reburial. The head of the Vidoc Society, William Fleischer, Fleischer, stated, quote, our mission is to go forward and put a name on that gravestone. So let's get into our suspects. Let's go back to Fred, okay? Fred was the second person who discovered the boy. Garbage. Garbage. Peeping Tom, like... Just be honest. I get it. Don't make up gross. a story. Right? So fucking gross. But he was questioned, but he was quickly released. They didn't have anything on him. Fuck you, why did Yeah. Why did he come to the crime to sneak on? You know, it just didn't. He wasn't a good suspect. John, the high schooler that was later found and admitted to finding the crime scene before, was basically never a suspect. He was too scared. He just happened upon it. Didn't talk about it. Okay. That leads us. Those are the only suspects. Right. Okay, and they're not really suspects. They were yeah. never really suspects. But we have some leads. The leads other suspects. There were hundreds of leads that included randomly he was a hung the boy was a Hungarian refugee. He was ki- he was a kidnapped victim from 1955 outside of a grocery store. He was related to local carnival workers that had abused the child and gotten rid of his body. It very odd. Well, again, I was thinking, you know, how often are carnival workers coming around? But in 1957, I assume pretty popular. But other than all those random leads, there were two theories that were considered the most promising. The first one I'm going to talk about is a nearby foster home. And this was a possible lead only three years after the boy's discovery in 1960. An employee of the medical examiner's office named Remington Bristow um, contacted a New Jersey psychic. Because there's some people, like, this has been done before. They're like, we're getting nowhere. Let's find a psychic. Mm-hmm. Great. Good for him. She had described a home to look out for. And the home she described closely matched a foster home nearby the site of where the boy was found. The foster home was only a little over a mile from where the boy was found. And then Bristow brought her in to investigate, uh, brought her in into the investigation. And she quickly led them to that nearby foster home. Granted, I don't know because some people, if you talk about with psychics, they already did their research. It's three years after. Does she know there's a nearby foster home? You know, you never really know. But Bristow, there ended up being an estate sale at that foster home. And when he was there, he saw a bassinet that looked similar to the ones mm. um, sold at JCPenney's that represented the one that would have been in the box. 
And he also found blankets that resembled the one found with the oh, boy's body. Oh, no. So he, theor- <laughs> so he theorized that the boy could have been living in the foster home and that someone in the home had accidentally killed him. He believed that the boy was the son of the owner's stepdaughter who had become pregnant after she and her stepfather began a sexual relationship. Probably non-consensual, but yeah. Right? So unwed and with a child, they had hid the boy away, but then when he accidentally died, the stepfather slash father had to then secretly dispose of the boy so that he would not be exposed for his death. So that's what they were thinking. Later on, police lieutenant Tom Augustine interviewed both the stepdaughter and the stepfather, but the interview seemed to confirm that there was no involvement in the crime. The two had married by that time. Ew. Ew. But a DNA test of the stepfather, a stepdaughter ruled her out automatically as not the boy's mother. So you couldn't, you know. But still very fucking gross. Really fucking gross. Like, and... Just how is that allowed? So close, yeah. But also allowed. So close. Similar blankets. The bassinet. They're like, oh my god, like that's a lot. Like I, if I was Bristow, I'd been like, yo, this is it. This is definitely them. But they never found any evidence that indicated that he even lived there in the first place. And plus DNA, she's not the mom. So what else? You know, like. mm. So this is the second lead, which is a little crazy. (laughs) Sorry, sorry. (laughs) So we're going to call her M. Or Mary, because her real identity isn't known. But 40 years after the boy's discovery, another lead arose that held some merit. In 2002, an Ohio-based psychiatrist told the Philadelphia authorities that one of her patients, named M for her protection, had claimed to have information about the unknown boy. First, suspicious. Two, not really, because if you're holding on to the secret, maybe you do know something. And it comes out during your therapy session. That could happen. Yeah. But also you're hearing like from a psychiatrist and you're like, well, who's this person? Is it reliable? But also they have, don't they have like, they can't tell your secret, they can't, secrets. They can't say they, it's confidential unless it harms unless it's yourself harmful. or someone else. Yeah. Or with murder cases, I assume. I'd assume, yeah. Right? Okay. Yeah. So M or Mary claimed that in 1954... Three years before his murder, the boy whose name was Jonathan had been sold to her mother by his parents. Some sources did specify that it was from a human trafficking ring in Kensington. Oh, God. Gross. She said that the boy suffered from repetitive physical, sexual, and psychological abuse from her mother. And M stated that one night after he vomited up baked beans in his bath. Oh, God. Her mother had beat him to death in a fit of rage, smashing his head onto the floor and (gasps) accidentally killing him. Okay? So I know why you're gasping because we heard some of those details before. So M said that after her mother washed him and cut his hair before putting him in the trunk of their car and driving him to the Fox Chase location, using the box and blanket to hide him. When they parked the car, M said a male motorist had approached them to ask if they needed assistance with the large package in their trunk, but they had ignored him until he left. Police investigators knew that her story included credible details, such as the baked beans, the fact that parts of him were pruned, from being then recently washed. And also the story had corroborated corroborated confidential testimony given by a male witness in 1957, which could have been perhaps the motorist. If, in ca- if that's actually credible, if it's true. Police were troubled. What? 
This is what pisses me off. They held off and the police were troubled by M's testimony since M had a history of mental illness in which isn't even specified. Well, shit, she has mental illness if this is true and this is her mother. That's what I mean. That's Hello? You're talking about, but mental illness, anxiety, depression. It, it could have been anything. It could have been anything, but it troubled them, which I guess, fair. Why is she coming out 40 years later if it was like, I get it, but you never know. It could have been so traumatizing that she didn't want to talk about it yes she probably has guilt for it exactly so that kind of pissed me off because it troubled them but it wasn't specified what mental illness okay fine when interviewing neighbors of m and the family they denied that the young boy ever lived in the home and said that miss miss m's claims were ridiculous and i can understand that if the boy wasn't a secret yeah if she bought him literally and like he was malnourished and beaten maybe they didn't know the source did say that they had access to the home so i assume it was friendly neighbors they could have come over whatever he could have been forced to be be quiet he could be hidden in a closet or locked in a i literally was about to say that yes you never know but i mean to be fair as neighbors maybe they kind of did know the in and outs but everybody has secrets so they don't really know um, and in the end, investigators couldn't um, substantiate her claim, and no evidence was found. And that led to another dead end. So they talked to the, the, you know, mother? I'm assuming at this point, the mother could have been dead. Oh, if it was true, then good. That's, I mean, yeah, that's true. So throughout the decades, occasional leads would come up, and each would be followed up on, but nothing came of any of them. So the most exciting part of this story is that we finally ID'd the boy. And this past December on this past December in 2022, after 65 years, the boy in the box finally had a name. And using DNA analysis and detective work, authorities identified the boy as Joseph Augustus Zarelli. So thank God this boy has a name because this has been an ongoing case and it's just, it's very exciting. And again, I wanted to wait until right now to say his name. It has been over the news. If you don't know this case, I mean, definitely check up on it, but it's very important. So Joseph, we know you, we know your name. You are a person. We know, you know, now we just need to figure out what the hell happened to you. So at the time his body was found, he had just turned four years old. And the Philadelphia Police Department Commissioner, Danielle Outlaw, which sounds like I made up that name for myself. It does. Announced on December 8th his identity. And she said, quote, this child's story was always remembered by the community and his story was never forgotten. Outlaw and others explained during the police press conference that his identity was found thanks to genetic genealogy, whereas DNA was uploaded to genetic databases. And doing that led detectives to relatives on the boy's mother's side that they then poured through birth records and were able to identify his father, which is amazing because Jesus Christ. And I saw something on TV where someone was being interviewed and she said basically like it's like doing a Sudoku puzzle. You know everything that isn't what it is and then you have to just rule everything else out. And then this is where they came up with it, which is... Very cool. There they learned that Zarelli's mother had three other children, I think all boys, all older sons, and that Joseph was born on January 13th, 1953. So he had literally just turned four. Police had kept, is still keeping tight-lipped on other details, but we know that both of the boys' parents are now deceased. 
Out of respect for Joseph's living siblings, police refuse to give any names and refuse to publicly speculate who killed Joseph, even though it's been noted that police um, have their suspicions and very strong, strong suspicions. I wonder what their suspicions are. But um, Outlaw did state that, quote, this is still an active homicide investigation and we still need the public's help in filling in this child's story. This announcement only closes one chapter in his in this little boy's story while opening up a new one, end quote. So I don't know what their suspicions are. I believe it's close to home. I do. It's a cover up. I mean, it's a child. It's a four year old boy. Now they're going because I assume this all behind, you know, closed doors they're learning a lot about stuff and they're going through their own trauma of, oh my God, that was my brother. Like, I haven't like looked into it because if they want to be private, they're going to be private. I, I doubt I could find anything they haven't already told us. It's just very, very sad that we still have no fucking idea what happened. It's just crazy to me. But you know what? DNA, the 50s, I mean, they did it with the Golden State Killer. They found out he was it. There's another story that I'm going to get into that they found decades later like that's the thing and as long as they keep that dna and they keep testing and keep holding on to evidence maybe every unsolved murder can be solved but at least now the first unsolved like the identity at least that was solved so at least now when you look up joseph's name you can see pictures of him healthy and happy as a normal boy instead of just the bruised Pictures of the circulars that they, you know, had to send out. But it's still very sad that we have no idea what happened to them. I wish we did. But we have some ideas. I have actually an update for you, too. As of, I think, yesterday, the 13th, (gasps) January 13th, he got a new headstone with his name. They did put a little picture of him. And they have, like, a, a little blurb underneath his name and his the date of his birthday and mm-hmm. death day. And it's a very nice stone. That's a very nice, yeah, plot. Let me see. Um, oh, and even what? more so, the reason they did it yesterday was because it was his birthday. Some people said happy birthday to him, and they put balloons and stuff Aww. by his headstone. Um, it says here that they the crowd included current and former investigators, city residents nice. who had been troubled by the case, mm-hmm. and even apparent members of Joseph's newly identified family. Oh! <gasps> Oh my God, that's amazing. Some say said they came to pay their respects to the child whose memory had haunted them for decades. Oh my God. Well, hopefully we'll find more more stuff out as the time goes on this year with, yeah, you know, we'll are, they gonna, updated. are they going to release the names of the, the parents, yeah, the yes. siblings once they start, you know, pulling back all of that information? <sighs> yeah. So, Joseph, I'm so glad that we have your name. And again, for a third time, I did want to save his name to the end because I thought it was important to go through it as the investigators did, which was completely unknown up until recently. So, yeah. That was a really great um, topic. Yes. I'm, I'm, like I said, really I was working great. on something else and this just was on the TV at work. I never sit in front of the TV at work and they're like, <laughs> breaking news. And I'm like, oh my God. And I threw everything else out and I was like, I'm doing this right now. As we say here in in our podcast lab, which is today Sam's bedroom, um, stick around for more cool stuff. <laughs>